What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's feature is poet and spoken word artist Lauren Wheeler. She's got a new book out called In Between Places, published by Nomadic Press. Hello, Lauren. Hello. Nice to speak with you. Good to speak with you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, This week is the week before my kid goes back to school, and it's my first full week of being unemployed. Right on. Are you enjoying that? Are you going to enjoy that? Are you excited about that? I am. I am. I'm getting to connect with myself and my people and my family, and it's feeling really good. I'm excited for you. Lauren, I want to start with a little bit about you. Talk to me about little Lauren, where you grew up. What was home life like? Sure. Um, So I was born in Chicago. Both of my parents are also from Chicago. And I primarily lived with my grandmother until I was 10 years old, while my mother lived in Chicago and then elsewhere, a lot of that time going to school and then getting her graduate degree in psychology from Columbia So I didn't live with her until I was 10. So I grew up with my grandmother and a huge family from her 13. You know, she was one of 13 kids, so a lot of cousins. Um, And when I was 10, I moved out to Oakland to live with my mother and her girlfriend. So things were very different, let's just say, after (laughs) an upbringing in the Pentecostal church. The Bay Area was a revelation in a lot of ways. Talk to me a bit about that granny love. I mean, I, I I explore this with guests a lot. There's something about granny love that is is different and I think almost unique um, to, to our folks. Yeah, my grandmother, my grandmother only had one kid. You know, she was one of thirteen. She didn't have my mother until she was almost forty-two, mm. and she retired shortly after I was born basically to take care of me, um, to be that sort of full-time person. And it's funny because when I think about how I saw her as a child, when I was a child, you know, she seemed very stern, but the reality was that's the only place I've ever found truly unconditional love and support and steadiness. I was honored the last couple of years of her life. Um, My mother and I sort of made the decision to bring her out to California. She had been living in Springfield, Illinois, with her older sister, who is now the only remaining sibling from their family. We brought her out here, and I was able to help care for her um, before she passed at 97. When did you discover writing, and, and what, what purpose did it serve for you once you did? When I was a kid, my mother's art was all over my apartment that I lived in with my grandmother. Um, You know, she focused on dance and art. And my father is a musician. He played bass in funk bands and punk bands in Chicago in the 70s, which says some things. So there was always a sense of art around me, even growing up in a fairly, you know, limited environment in some ways. And writing just became the thing that I did, I think, especially after I left Chicago. I remember my mother gave me my first journal when I was 10. And that's when I started keeping a diary. And I've kept one since then. At some point that writing, you know, it 
it veered into fiction, but there was always poetry. That was the thing that I constantly returned to. And it was sometime in high school, I think my sophomore year in Miss Kempler's class in Miami Beach Senior High, we were living in Florida. That was when I realized that poetry was something that made me feel more like myself than anything else had. In the introduction uh, to your book, In Between Places, uh, you talk about Oakland as home, um, particularly as you were purchasing your home uh, from from Texas, which didn't feel like home. Um, I hear so many Black folks talk about struggling to make Oakland feel like home anymore. What for you still feels like home for you in the town? And is there anywhere where you feel like a stranger or like you're being forcibly separated from that place which you've identified as home? It's really interesting because I've been in the Bay Area, you know, for so long. And I lived in San Francisco and then I moved to West Oakland. Then I moved back to San Francisco at some point and I moved back to Oakland. And the reason I left for a couple of years and went to Austin was because I couldn't afford to live here. And then living in in, in Austin was very clearly not going to be where I put down roots, where I wanted to have a child. And I came back here. And, you know, I definitely sort of talk about this, I think, in some of the poems in the book. But the sense of being displaced feel so constant for me. And I think some of it's personal and familial, and then some of it is definitely geographic and political. And buying this home from this white guy and his two partners who had lived here for a couple of years, they displaced a family, a Black family that lived in this house for more than 40 years. And my neighbors, when I first moved in, was this really nice white couple with a little girl, and they hated the guy that owned my house because he didn't care about the neighborhood. He didn't care about the people who lived in it. He was excited when the police came and knocked down their fence looking for a robber that didn't exist. They were very thoughtful when they sold the house next door so that they could move back to the East Coast and they sold it to another black woman from Oakland. I feel like on this block where I live on Martin Luther King Jr. Way, You know, we've got this little compound now, like three houses in a row where we own our homes and that feels important. You know, that said, this is still ghost town and there's still a lot of sort of ambivalence, I think, around what this neighborhood is supposed to mean. Property values are crazy, but also, you know, I walked home last week and three people have been killed at the corner and that's still this neighborhood as well. And I don't want that to be what makes this feel like home to me. I want to dream about a better home for my son and for all of the other people living here and for the children being raised here. But I don't want that to come at the cost of our ability to exist and to make home out of this place that so often feels really hostile. It just triggered a thought for me um, when you talked about, you know, the three three of you, this little compound that own your homes, and that feels important. I made the decision 20-plus years ago now, I guess, when I was I started working and making, I mean, I never made really great money because I've always been an organizer and an actress, but when I started making, uh, you know, funds where I didn't necessarily have to live in the hood anymore, right? Like, I could, I could have moved um, and lived someplace where there weren't gunshots and there weren't liquor stores in every corner. Um, and even when I had my kid, I made the decision to stay 
because I thought it was important that little black boys and little black girls saw folks get up and go to work every morning and have nice things and play in the yard. And that felt important to me. But it came at a cost, right? It came at a cost of having to teach my daughter how to get on the floor, you know, as soon as she heard gunshots. It came at the cost of, you know, houses being broken into and cars being broken. It, it came at a cost. And now I'm at a place where I'm like, I don't, that sounds bizarre, but I, I feel like I've done my time, if that makes any sense. You know, 25 plus years, my kids get ready to go to college and I want some more peace and quiet. I, 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 long-winded question, um, balancing being a mama bear, right? Taking care of your kid and taking care of our people, right? Because it is important that, that, that you own your home on that block. Girl, I, f- I feel you. It's hard. It's really hard. You know, I have spent a lot of my adult life working in tech, which was a complete and total accident. I majored in English. I assumed that my first job out of college was going to involve waiting tables. I've done plenty of that. And, you know, I'm also a Black woman working in tech, and I'm not an engineer. Mm -hmm. So I have been massively underpaid and undervalued my entire career. And I get that everything is relative, but that is something that still smarts. But it's been in the last few years where I finally got to the point where I thought I was making something close to on par with what my white uh, peers are probably making. And it's been a thought of, can I afford to move somewhere quieter? Like the pandemic was so disruptive in so many ways for so many people. But for me, part of it was walking through this neighborhood with my kid, the businesses that we used to visit were gone. Yeah, A lot of them were already, you know, on their last leg before uh, the pandemic because of greedy commercial landlords who wanted to shut down the little neighborhood cafe and open another pot club because they could make so much more money. You know, greedy folks who were taking money out of other local businesses. It was difficult living here and feeling like a lot of the resources and not just, you know, places to go buy things, but places to feel like you were connecting with your neighbors. The town square had dried up and disappeared and it wasn't safe. So I had to get my kid in the car and then drive up to Lake Temescal or Tilden Park to go for walks so that we could breathe fresh air, so that we could see trees. And I don't want to have to choose between living in a healthy neighborhood and living amongst people who look like me. I don't want that to be the choice. That feels like a false choice. It feels like we have done something entirely wrong when those are the choices that we're forced to make. But the reality is, is that, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot too, America is a segregated country. Oh, yeah. I mean, they talk about integration, the great integration movement, that failed experiment that we probably, you know, we're, I think we're very close in age, if not the same age, that failed experiment of like busing us, mm-hmm. right, into white neighborhoods for sixth grade. So it, it almost, I mean, yes, it it, it it feels like a false choice, but it, but it kind of is. Yeah. Right? I mean, to be fair, I was bused from the south side of Chicago to the west side of Chicago to a ma- to a magnet school. So... It was still an hour, <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. you know, and even, even with my kids, like I go back and forth with myself constantly about where he goes to school. You know, he doesn't go to public school. And that was a very intentional decision I made 
to send him to a public school founded by a black woman, you know, with a staff that's all people of color, with a student body that is primarily kids of color, where most of them get some sort of scholarship, because I think that kind of diversity of socioeconomic background as well as racial background is important. Now, the school is sitting in Montclair, you know, and the day after the shooting in Uvalde, they got a random email from somebody who clearly was using a fake email address that was terrifying, um, talking about how loud and rude these kids are who are four and playing outside at recess, but they are disturbing the peace and we know whose peace is important. And it's this sense of, so I'm sending my kid to this place where he is getting loved on in all of the ways that are important and being taught in ways that are valuable and all of that with a strong sense of identity, but it's still happening in this unsafe place which simply reminds me why I don't necessarily want to move to a Montclair Mm. or to some quote unquote safer neighborhood Mm. because we won't ever be safe there. I'm going to ask you something personal and you can feel free to like, tell me to shut up and move on. Um, (laughs) um, We've known each other a while, so (laughs) feel free to to do so. Your your partner is white. Yes. My partner is white. Yes. And I found at least in, in, my case that sometimes navigating like this very conversation, right? So like for him, we're spending a bunch of time in Oakland and the music blaring and the gunshots and the fights that happen and right. That is just sort of day-to-day life on the block, really challenging for him and mm-hmm. having to navigate those politics with him and bring him along. And I'm just wondering about your experience with that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So my partner, Charlie, we've been together a few years and we actually met through work years ago. And he was the first white person that I dated for probably over a decade because I had made a very intentional decision not to do that shit no more. Oh my God, I did the same thing. (laughs) I did that exact same thing. Same thing with Brett. I was like, 20 years ago, I said I wasn't doing this again. Yeah. And here I am. When When I was dating somebody who empathized more with Johannes Meserly than with Oscar Grant and picked a fight with me in the days following. I was like, oh, we done now. (laughs) 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 Anymore. (laughs) We are so done right now. Done, done. And the next person I dated, I had known for a while, person of color, also a poet, ran into him like at a rally in March where I was wearing a security vest and trying to keep people in line. And he was there with his, I am Oscar Grant sign. And I was like, bet. And like, that was it for a while. But now, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, my partner lived in the mission for a decade. Um, so he's used to, let's say urban settings. So I think there's been less about the sort of day-to-day lived experience in this neighborhood that is terribly shocking just because he lived through that. But he's also, you know, from Virginia and, you know, grew up with a very specific culture. And he had started unpacking a lot of it before we ever got together, which was good. So we could have some really healthy conversations. But yeah, there are definitely times when I have to add context uh, for something that's going on. Yeah. So I find it's often less about what's going on on the block and more about what's going on in my office. 
Mm. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, why am I in this position? Why am I being treated this way? Um, you know, why is my career stagnating while others seem to be promoted? Why, you know, there's a lot of things around this world that he's actually very familiar with, where there's a lot more blindness there to inequity. But to give him massive props, like he gets it. I think he's now just actually seeing, oh, this is the this is the lived experience of this thing that I've been aware of in a very abstract way. Yeah. Yeah, Brett's from Montana. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but but to, to his credit, right, is showing up and, and doing the work. Yeah. But there are definitely conversations where, like, something will happen and I'll get mad, right, at whoever's on the block and he'll start. I'm like, oh, no, 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 you don't get to be mad. You have to actually shut up. <laughs> I get to be mad. You go in sight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which, which he does. Yeah. We've had that conversation too about, you know, should I take this one? I'm like, no, let me, I'll, I'll be the one to take this one because the perception's just different. If you say something. Yeah. It's going to go a whole nother direction, my dude, Uh Um, for sure. (laughs) Lauren, you've got a new book out in between places published by nomadic press. Um, I would like for you to talk a little bit about what the title means for you. I mean, you're a poet, so no words are on accident. And then I'd love for you to read us a piece from the book. Cool. Yeah, so In Between Places is a long (laughs) sort of evolution of a manuscript that started a long time ago and has changed. It's also the name of a poem in it, which is very much about this sense of dislocation of not having a home. You know, I spoke about my grandmother earlier being this uh, sort of consistent, unconditional love. When I left Chicago at 10 to go live with my mother, we experienced a lot of housing insecurity. You know, I lived with my mother from basically fifth grade until I left for college. And I can't count the places that we lived during that time. And there are a lot of reasons for that, Mm. Um, you know, and I get into it a bit in the book. And, you know, I think, you know, I have suffered from depression and anxiety. And I will say that I get it honestly, that these things travel in families. And, you know, I'm of a generation now where I am a proud attendee of weekly therapy sessions. Um, My mother is a therapist, but that didn't necessarily mean that she got the care that she needed. You and I got to have some wine. My my mom was a therapist too. Me me and you are going to have drinks here coming up soon. Yeah. You know, my, my mom's still alive. She's in Florida. Again, she lived out here for a while, which was like inviting a tornado into my life. And she is now in Florida and potentially wants to come back out here. We'll see what happens. But um, yeah, this book is really about sort of places that I've been and people that I have been and people and places where I've tried to make home. So it covers, you know, both my family relationships with my mother, as well as with my father, who was absent until I was an adult. And I drove reconnecting with him. You know, he lives in upstate New York uh, with my stepmother and my half-brother, who I met at eight. He lives there as well. He's 11 years younger than I am. You know, the book kind of covers family and friendships and romantic relationships and 
trying to find a place that feels like it belongs to me. And that's kind of how we land. We land in Oakland. So uh, the piece I would like to share, it's called Ghost Town. And it's actually the poem that closes the book. There's a freeway behind my house, hovering over its shoulder, like a falling knife. I cannot tell if it is safer for my son to play in the backyard, where the soil is pregnant with lead, or out front, which is also pregnant with lead. There's a slug still stuck in the front gate from a shooting Thanksgiving weekend, 2009. My gray hatchback took a bullet in the bumper my first fall here, four years later. This street used to be called Grove Street. Now it's called Martin Luther King Jr. Way. In Chicago, where I was born, I lived on Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. Hundreds of streets all over the country named for a victim of America, a consolation prize. It's not even a good freeway. It's a connector. It connects one shitty freeway with another shitty freeway. It's not a freeway one would write songs about or poems. Though I could tell you a story about the night a cougar crept across it into the plum and oak trees at the rear of my yard and terrorized a family of raccoons. My neighbor and I whispered to each other across the fence in the dark hands clutching makeshift weapons, listening to chittering, and then a low, deep-throated growl, and then a thump before the cat's pale silhouette eased down a tree trunk and skulked back towards the cars speeding to downtown Oakland and points further south. The freeway is a dividing line, previously a red line. The reason no one fixed the potholes until three years after I moved here, a middle-class black harbinger of gentrification. The freeway is a dividing line, maybe still a red line, but I saw a white woman with fuchsia hair jog past earlier today, unbothered by the falling knife or the lead or the mountain lion or the dead black man this road is named after or the one shot at the corner last week. So property values, must be going up. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Lauren, where can people cop the book and how do they follow you on the social? <laughs> uh, you can order um, the book directly from nomadicpress.com. I believe it's also being carried at Medicine for uh, Nightmares and the Mission, the old Alley Cat books. Um, and you can also order it at your local bookstore. You can follow me primarily on Twitter these days because I can doom scroll with the best of them. I'm fighting words. <laughs> um, I'm at fighting words on Twitter. I'm going to follow you right now. Uh, Lauren Wheeler, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, and this week's feature uh, is Lauren Wheeler. She's got a new book out, In Between Places, published by Nomadic Press. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. 
Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>